anyway. Um, okay, you're all very well, welcome back to this uh, next session, uh, which I'm very excited about. Um, and it's a huge pleasure to be able to welcome uh, Wesley Follett, who has come from the University of Southern uh, Mississippi. It's a great pleasure to have him here, um, an expert on the Kayla Day. Uh, and he's going to speak on Lauerbrach as a 15th century window on the Kayla Day. Thank you very much. Uh, let me start by saying how pleased I am to be here. Uh, thank you to the conference organizers for uh, the extending the invitation. I'm, I'm delighted. Uh, it's, it's long been known uh, in its extant condition uh, that Laubrock is chronologically disordered, uh, as Professor O'Higgins has just reminded us, uh, which is to say, of course, that the, the choirs of the manuscript are not bound in the original order of their writing. Uh, and that some of the choirs themselves are internally disrupted with missing and or inserted leaves. Uh, this isn't terribly surprising, given that for some undetermined length of time, prior to the uh, Royal Ash Academy's acquisition of it in 1789, the manuscript was unbound uh, in loose choirs. So it is our considerable good fortune, then, that the primary scribe of Lauerbrock, uh, Mercado Kunlisch, uh, made frequent marginal comments, wherein he gave some indication of the date and occasionally the place of his writing. Uh, from these scribal comments, uh, other scholars before me have ascertained the likely years of Okunlish's writing as from 1408 to 1411 and have worked out the probable chronological order of the choirs. Uh, now, it is not my intent here to focus upon the codicology of Lauerbrock, but the first thing I want to do is to highlight a particular text that in a very real sense uh, comes to the fore of the manuscript when its contents are viewed in the likely order of their writing. And this will serve as a, a useful preface uh, to my main concern, which is the representation of the Kayle Day in Lauerbrock. The text I refer to uh, is, of course, uh, Fehler Angusa. With its accompanying Middle Irish preface, notes, and commentary, it comprises almost the entirety of choirs E and F, according to the present codicological configuration of Lauerbrock. And uh, for an understanding of the latter, I likewise rely upon the work of Thomas Terhorst, as I've not had opportunity myself to examine the choiring. The, uh, the Fehlerer was, as best we can tell, the first text that Okundish copied into what became Lauerbrock. We can ascertain the year from a couple of comments he makes in these two choirs. Uh, first on page 86, where he observes that uh, Christmas falls on Monday tonight. Uh, now, Cheney's Handbook of Dates uh, indicates that December 24th fell on a Monday in the years uh, 1403 and 1408, but not again until 1487. Uh, and then on page 95, O'Connellish notes the, the role of uh, Illich Burke of Clan Rickard uh, in the, uh, the capture of the Archbishop of Cashel. Uh, and uh, then according to uh, entries in the Annals of Connacht and also the Four Masters, which uh, provide dates relative to Ulrich Burke from 1407 and, of course, his uh, obit, uh, 1428. Uh, this, this points, uh, between these two marginal comments, to the likelihood that uh, Fehler Angusser, or rather O'Connellish, uh, was occupied copying Fehler Angusser 
late in December uh, 1408 and probably on into 1409. Uh, these go into choirs E and F. And uh, to my understanding, no other text in Larbrock uh, appears to have been transcribed uh, so early as that. I suggest the uh, placement of Failure Angus uh, as the earliest or first text of what becomes Larbrock would have provided the codex upon its completion uh, with a measure of programmatic cohesion. This is to say that the, uh, the numerous homilies, passions, saints' lives, and other texts that O'Kunlish selected for transcription into Larbrock uh, would have provided material suitable for the observance of the liturgical year laid out uh, at the beginning of the manuscript in Phaler Angusa. Now, to be sure, Larbrock does not provide a treatment of all of the events and figures mentioned in the Phaler. Uh, but it does deal with a fair few. Uh, for instance, in respect to the temporale, uh, which in Failure Angusa presumes an Easter date of March 27, uh, O'Connellish provided uh, Irish paraphrases of gospel texts appropriate for the celebration of Easter, uh, as well as homilies and narratives for the observances of Palm Sunday, uh, Monday Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, uh, Pentecost, and also for the fixed feasts of the Circumcision, uh, Epiphany, and the Transfiguration. Uh, in regard to the Sanctorelli, uh, he provided uh, passions for Stephen the Proto-Martyr, uh, John the Baptist, many of the apostles, and homiletic lives or sermons for Martin, Patrick, uh, Columkila, Bridget, uh, and Michael the Archangel, among others. So to sum up this, this early initial point, I propose that there may be a greater measure of intentionality regarding the text that O'Kunlish selected for inclusion in Lara Brock. That is, a purposeful correlation between the Phalera and the rest of the Codex, one that was obscured by the later disordering of the choirs. This, uh, I agree, speaks to uh, what I also think is the intent behind the production of Lara Brock, that is to create a kind of source book for ecclesiastics. This attention to the failure uh, segues uh, nicely, I think, to the primary focus of my remarks on the representation of the Cayley Day within Lara Brock. Now, modern scholarship harbors no doubt that the author of the failure was Angus Mach Engelvand. Now, back in the 15th century, O'Kunlish himself was unquestionably aware of the attribution of the Middle Irish preface uh, to the failure, which O'Kunlish dutifully copied uh, declares the author of the martyrology to be Angus, who is uh, further identified in a marginal comment as the son of Angavon and proceeding uh, further into his genealogy, uh, who's writing in the time of Aed Odmil, the uh, king of Aliak. Now, these and additional details from the preface uh, situate Angus in the early 9th century. Now, strictly speaking, Angus uh, does not uh, call himself a Kela Dei, a servant or, or a client of God. For my part, however, I think the application of that term is entirely justified. Uh, in the epilogue to the Phaler, the author twice refers to himself as a Kela of Christ, uh, once as a Kela of Jesus. He also invokes blessings upon Malrun, uh, that is Malrun of Tala, whom he calls his Aetia, that is a tutor or foster father. O'Kunlish, of course, read this as he transcribed the failure into Lara Brock, and for that matter, 
He would have also have read in the Middle Irish uh, poem in praise of Angus, which he copied immediately after the Fener, that Angus worked in the kiln at Tala, drying corn. So there's no doubt then that O'Connish would have understood that the author of the Fener was Angus the Caelachist, whose etia was Malruan of Tala, which of course is the location of the earliest known community of Caelidae, and where Angus himself was said to have resided for a time. This sets up the question at the heart of my uh, paper here. What would an early 15th century reader of Loud Rock, uh, presuming no prior knowledge of the Kelly Day, nothing to go on apart from the contents of this manuscript, what would that reader conclude about the Kelly Day? Or put another way, as Marcharo Kunlish transcribed Fehlera Angusso and other texts which refer to Kelly Day, what would have he come to believe or think about who and what they were. I think the question is not without significance. We know of a fair amount about the Cayley Day in Ireland uh, from an earlier time, following the founding of the community at Tala in the late eighth century. And we know a bit about persons referenced as uh, Cayley Day or Coledei, uh, mentioned in numerous medieval registers, charters and deeds, from uh, Armagh and other locations in Ireland, down to as late as 1628. But for that period in between, say from about the 11th century until oh, about the 13th or 14th, our sources of information on the Kelly Day are few. So Lauer Brock, uh, I suggest, offers us the opportunity to perceive medieval Kelly Day from an early 15th century perspective, from the vantage point of Okunlish as he transcribed texts that speak of the Kili Day. Now the resulting picture should not be taken to represent, as, as Leopold von Ranke might put it, how it actually was in respect to the Kili Day of the early or medieval periods, but rather how they appeared, whether accurately or not, in a manuscript book completed about the year 1411. To begin, I contend that Okunlish would have noted that Angus was much concerned with liturgical or extra-liturgical performance. As the poet directed in the epilogue, the failure was to be recited in the course of a vigil. Uh, he considered the equivalent of performing, uh, the recitation of it, uh, as the equivalent of performing seven masses, or, or for that matter, reciting the entire Psalter. Uh, he conceived the failure as a supplication, duper, the urgent prayer, and, he proposed that he would stand uh, as surety for the grace of any, any who sang the failure every day, assuring them salvation. According to the Middle Irish praise poem that immediately follows the failure in Larbrock, every night Angus himself recited the 350s, that is all 150 psalms, and performed 300 genuflections. So to the extent that O'Connell viewed Angus the Cale Christ, as representative of Day, he likely would have concluded that they were occupied with liturgical and devotional activities surpassing the expectations of the divine office, uh, expectations that were the norm for most religious in the medieval period. We shall see this point reinforced in some additional Lauerbrock texts. And we've already noted that Angus calls himself Kela Christ, but there's another significant term that he applies to himself he asks that those who read or recite the failure have charity for him, bokhthin, poor little thing, 
This word, I, I venture, we may take as a reference to literal poverty. Uh, in the previous stanza, Angus remarks that he is uh, in a slight body, uh, slender or skinny. The context, I think, uh, points to ascetic poverty. Further to this point, that is, uh, a seeming association between Kelede uh, and poverty, I bring another Lavrock text into the conversation. Inquire D, written probably 1411, O'Kunlish provided a copy of the Middle Irish homiletic Life of Bridget. Uh, it includes a tale of two lepers seeking alms, and to whom Bridget provides a single cow. One of the lepers is ungrateful, not wishing to share the cow with his fellow, and chastises Bridget's nuns, saying, until today, I've never been counted among Kelide and among the poor, the and the feeble lovre, and I am not to be slighted with a single cow. The sense of this comment, I, I think, is indignation. Uh, the leper is saying, in effect, do I look like a Kelide to you, like one of the poor, and the feeble, I deserve my own cow. For the record, this does not end well for the leper. But for our purposes, the takeaway is that a 15th century reader would surely have understood that a Kelede was expected to be bore, poor, a pauper, and evidently also lobar, weak, feeble, much like Angus, who was in a slight body, slender or skinny. Also relevant here, I think, is the Middle Irish parody, Ashlinga Maconglina, uh, which O'Connellish copied into choir L of Lara Brock. At one point in the narrative, Maconglina, a discontented scholar from Armagh, is a guest of the Muntir, or, or the, the community of Cork, where the hospitality proves to be shockingly deficient. Resorting to the food that he brought with them, Maconglina mockingly proposes to give a portion of it to the Muntir as a tithe. As Meyer translated, here are tithes, ye monks of Cork, said Maconglina. If we knew the man who has better right, or who is poorer than another, to him would we give our tithes. All the paupers that were there rose up on seeing the tithes and reached out their hands. Drino Quith commented on this passage, calling attention to the clause, uh, the man who is poorer than another is Bokhthar Arkeli. And he suggests that the author being aware of the association between Bocht and Kele de De as generic terms is making a play on words. Kele may be taken to mean another, just as Meyer did, but it can also be understood more narrowly as a reference to the Kele De. The supposed object of Mokongana's mockery was the poor, or the Bocht of the Muntir of Cork, who rose up on seeing the tithes and reached out their hands. Mokongana effectively slights them by saying, if there was anyone else there with better right than these, anyone who is poorer than a Kelede, then he would willingly render his ties to that person. Makangana then observes that he is poorer than those who were before him. Well, as Ohuib observes, the author's representation of the Bocht as a special category of dwellers and monastic surroundings is anachronistic in a tale set in the latter part of the 8th century. But perhaps it makes better sense in, uh, when regarded in the context of the 11th or perhaps early 12th century when Ashlinga Makongana was written, and I would add in O'Kunlish's day as well. And it points to an understanding that Kilide, who were expected to be poor, 
comprised a subset of the population of the monastic Munzer. The next Larbrock text I consider supports this view. Inquire O, written uh, likely also in 1411, Okunlish copied the lengthy old Irish metrical composition uh, headed Reglum Mokuta Rachan, the rule of Mokutu of Rachan. Uh, the text is also extant in other later manuscripts uh, to include RIA 23 and 10, wherein it is, interestingly, headed Fothad Machanoina Kikemet Hank Regulam. This attribution to the early 9th century ecclesiastic Fothad Machanoina uh, is, is striking, in, particularly in light of the Middle Irish uh, preface to Failure Angus that uh, O'Connellish copied into Lara Brock. Uh, this has Angus and Fothad uh, exchanging writings with one another and remarks, uh, they made their union there and each of them blessed the other's work of art. Well, the language of the rule makes Fathad Nokanuna a, a more plausible author than Mokuthu, a sixth century figure. Since the ascription to Fathad is not found in the Laubrock copy of the rule, uh, we must assume that O'Connellish was unaware of any alleged association between the author of the rule and Angus, the author of the failure. There's no question, however, that O'Connellish would have been aware of the relevance to the Kilide of at least one particular section of the text that he transcribed as the rule of Mokutu. Uh, the 12 stanzas under the heading Do Kilide no di Cleric Reclese, of a Kilide or Cleric of the Enclosure, as Maki Clege, uh, Thomas de Royce translated. Uh, the placement of this section within the larger rule, which also provides guidance uh, for ordained clergy and folk identified as maneg, monks, loosely speaking, reasonably suggests to a reader that, again, Kelide comprised a subset of a larger ecclesiastical community, just as we've already seen elsewhere in Larbrock. Uh, the wording uh, Kelide, or cleric of the enclosure, cleric reclesa, could be taken to mean that Kelide were associated with a specific precinct or perhaps a particular oratory or church within a larger settlement. Uh, the Laubrock copy of the Middle Irish Life of Patrick mentions the donation of land for the construction of a church and notes that when the building of the Reckless was completed, the grass that grew there was plentiful, uh, prompting a servant to graze a nobleman's horse there, uh, Ischen Reckless. Uh, Whitley Stokes accordingly chose here to translate uh, Reckless as uh, close, as in a church close. In the context of the 15th century, uh, by which time uh, the religious houses of, of uh, originally foreign monastic orders were ubiquitous in Ireland, O'Kunlish might plausibly have taken Kilide no cleric reclesa to signify a cloistered ecclesiastic. The duties that the rule of Mokutu assigns to the Kilide or cleric reclesa are specifically liturgical. The relevant section begins, if we be under the yoke of clerchet, uh, that is the, the clerical state, but perhaps more significantly, religious life. Noble is the custom. We frequent the holy church for each hour continually. When they hear the bell summoning them to service, it continues, they prostrate themselves, sing a pater and a gloria, and they sign themselves with a cross. And when they reach the church, they genuflect three times. Unmistakably, this is a reference to the liturgy of the hours. The section also provides varying instruction on what each order among them is to do between the daytime hours of the office. Prior to the hour of tears, it directs, we watch, we read, we pray, each according to his strength. 
uh, and then from Tirs to Nod, each rank, the grad, goes to its duty as is proper. Those who are in uh, priestly orders, Eishgrad, uh, to prayer, to the mass, as is right. The learned ones, Eishlegen, to teaching, as is their strength. The youths, Ochtar, to obedience, as is in the law. And work for the unlearned, Anechneg, after the will of a pious cleric. Not expressly clear from this is whether or not each of these, uh, the ordained clergy, the learned, the youths, the unlearned, uh, were all of them regarded as Kelidei. Perhaps so, uh, but the subheading, I think, suggests otherwise, of a Kelidei or a cleric, the clerse. Were the youths and the unlearned also clerics of the enclosure? This seems to me unlikely. Also, consider the line, celebration of every hour with every order, we perform. Now, who is the, the we? Uh, surely it is the Kelly Day. And, and what do they do? They celebrate every hour with every other order in the community, which I take to mean non-Kelly Day. But even if I'm mistaken on this point, at the very least, uh, the reader of this portion of the rule of Mokutu would have understood that not everyone present at an ecclesiastical community with resident Kelly Day were necessarily of the same grade or status. Some were clergy, some were laity. Some were learned, some were not. Some were young, some were not. But it appears that they all came together for the celebration of at least the daytime hours. A 15th century reader of the rule of Mokutu in Larbrak would surely have also realized that the liturgy of the hours was of paramount importance to the Kelly day. Mokunli doubtless learned more from the text known as the rule of the Kelly day which he copied into Choir A of Larbrak in October or later in probably 1411. Its association with Kelly Day was manifestly clear to him inasmuch as he wrote out the title of the text in a heading in Kipit Rikal na Day, followed with O Morun Kikenet, Malrun recited it. It must be said, however, that the attribution to the eighth century founder of Tala is false since the text is a Middle Irish composition, uh, perhaps 10th century, uh, derived from the Old Irish text, now often referred to as the Tala Memoir, which was not written by Malruin either. The rule's contents address a variety of subjects, among which liturgical matters frequently come up. I'll mention just one example, uh, the statement that it is not customary among the Kelidae to sleep in the oratory. This is what is customary among them to wit, for two of them to remain in the oratory until matins, and for them to chant the three fifties, and they dine at noon and sleep until night. And they sleep again from matins until lauds. Then two others remain from matins until lauds, and they chant the three fifties as well, and then sleep until tears, and celebrate tears in the company of everyone. So the, uh, the direction provided here uh, details how two pairs of Kelidae uh, recite in turn the Psalter in the course of a nightly vigil. This is reminiscent of a service of continual uninterrupted psalmody known as Laus Perennis, uh, first attested in Constantinople in the fifth century and in the Latin West in the sixth and later centuries. Uh, writing in the 12th century, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux claimed that a similar continuous service was maintained day and night at Bangor uh, during the Abbey of St. Malachy. Now, it's, it's unknown if this was still 
uh, kept at Bangor and Wilkunish's day, uh, let alone if he would have been aware of it. But at the very least, uh, he would have understood from these and other passages in the rule of the Kaili day that uh, the Kaili day were given to extra liturgical vigils and devotions beyond the performance of the divine office, which Okamish would have also realized from the rule of Mokutu was important to them as well. All of this complements what he had read about Angus the Kalechrist, who recited the entire Psalter every night and advised the recitation of the Phaler as a vigil in its own right. Dietary restrictions and fasts are also very frequently mentioned in the rule of the Kele Day. Most seem to have been applicable to the uh, broader community envisioned in the rule, as, for instance, expressly stated in a passage that directs a fast every month is observed by all of Malroon's community, namely a half pittance of bread and a half pittance of whey water. But other food restrictions and occasional relaxations uh, are uh, prescribed in an individualized, individualized penitential context, as with the direction a smearing of gruel is allowed to penitents on festivals and on Sundays. Congruent with this, uh, the rule provides considerable guidance on the offering of confession to an anamkarai, a soul friend, who assigns penance. For example, it observes one who makes his uh, confessions to an anamkarai if he does penance according to his will, it is not necessary for him to make them to another anamkara, accepting such things as he may subsequently commit. Now, it's not explicitly clear from the rule if the provision of anamkardane was limited to fellow day or if it was to be offered to a broader lay community. But there is some suggestion, I think, that the latter was intended. The rule acknowledges the possibility that uh, not all who receive the proper remedy of penance um, uh, from an anamkar will heed the direction. Indeed, it is more frequently violated, uh, often violated, than fulfilled. Uh, and am I on the slide of head here, perhaps? Yeah, sorry. Uh, it also allows that if there isn't a suitable anamkara nearby, it is permissible to offer confession to someone else. And if penance be done according to the rules of minor confession, this is not forbidden, no matter to whom his confession is made, even though it be to a student, or to a young cleric. This, to my thinking, is suggestive of a greater degree of flexibility in the matter of confession and penance than what we might plausibly expect within a closely regulated community of religious. Also, it's worth noting that in the rule of Mokutu, which offers guidance to a range of ecclesiastics, to include uh, the Kele Dei, as already noted, uh, also has instructions for the Anamkara. I'll quote the first few lines of that section. If you be an Anamkara to anyone, do not ask his name. Be not a blind guiding the blind. Do not leave him in neglect. They shall give you their confessions simply and entirely. You shall not take their alms if they be not obedient to you. This does not sound like direction particularly suited to the head of a religious community, such as an abbot who takes confessions from fellow religious. I think it's reasonable to surmise that from these two texts, both copied into the Law of Rock, Okunlish would have understood that Kelidei, or at least some among them, might provide pastoral care to a larger, heterogeneous, almsgiving lay population. Surely he would have thus expected that some Kelidei must have been ordained. 
I'll wrap this up with a brief mention now of a few annals that I think lend support to some of these observations. At least as early as the 10th century, uh, there were Kelidae at Armagh associated with specific buildings there. The Annals of Ulster record that in 921, Dublin Norse raided Armagh but spared from destruction the prayer houses, Matehi and Nehi, with their complement of Kelidae and Sipt, this compares well with what we've seen in the rule of Mokutu, which offers direction for a variety of ecclesiastics, among whom is the Kelede, or cleric of the Ecclesia. The prayer houses at Armagh might very well be identifiable with just such a Ecclesia. And the Armagh Kelede, who were present there, could have quite plausibly been occupied with a celebration of every hour with every order. We learn from the Annals of the Four Masters that in 1031, one Con Namoth, further identified as Kien Kelende Ors Ankori, first invited a party of the poor at Clamaknois at Isil Hiran. An earlier annal explains that he was called Con Namoth from the number of poor, the Bakhthed, that he used to feed habitually. Brino Quive, once more, has called attention to Con and others similarly styled Ken Kelende at Clamaknois, and their association with the poor at the nearby site of Isil Kiran. As he remarked, it is reasonable to assume that some individuals, though not necessarily all, would be poor by their own choice or through having taken a vow of poverty. These would be the late 10th century or early 11th century members of the Kelede movement whose presence in a monastic community would not be surprising. The AFM entries of 1031 and 1072 uh, suggest that, Clon, that the Clonmacnoise group resided at Isil Huron. Given that Khan himself donated 20 of his cows to the poor at Isil Huron, and that he had several sons, one of whom became Ken Bokth at Clonmacnoise after him, it seems that Khan was not himself a Kelede or anchorite, but rather a layman and a substantial property owner, as O'Quive suggested, and that his relationship to the Kelede, the poor of Isil Huron, was rather something like that of an almoner. The last kin Kelede that we know of at Clamac Noise was Ulrikia Mach Momorda, who died in 1200. Some 211 years later, Marcharo Kunlish visited Clamaknois, where he transcribed texts that comprise portions of Choir O in Larbrak. While there, did he learn something of the Kaili Day of Isil Hiran? We will likely never know for sure, but the texts he copied into Larbrak that mention Kaili Day accord well with what Irish annals tell us of the Kelidae who were at Clamaknois from the 10th century until at least the beginning of the 13th century, and for that matter, at Armagh, too, from at least as early as the 10th century. Uh, I think in a larger study, it would be useful to cross-reference these observations with evidence from Armagh's diocesan registers that mention Kelidae or Kolidae. The understanding transmitted to the early 15th century scribe or reader of Larbrock is that medieval Kelidae were found within larger ecclesiastical communities. 
residing apart, it would seem, from non-Kelidae in separate precincts with their own churches or oratories. That they were greatly occupied with liturgical and extra-liturgical observances to include daily vigils. That they were poor, perhaps voluntarily so, for ascetic reasons. And that confession and penance, as provided by an anamakara or soul friend, who was probably ordained, was an important component of their vocation. The medieval kilidae were not canons in the Augustinian or some other sense, as some modern scholars have supposed. But in respect to how they are represented in Lard Rock, there are some similarities. <clears throat> I think further observations about Kelidae and how they were perceived in the 15th century will arise in the course of a fuller study of Lard Rock and its contents. What I hope to have demonstrated here is the utility of bringing these disparate texts together into a, a kind of dialogue to learn how collectively they could have shaped the 15th understanding of a topic about which we still have much to learn. Thank you. Thank you.